0: Advances in in science and technology have wrongly been interpreted as enemies or the antithesis of belief. Nothing wrong with science or technology, but they have wrongly been interpreted as an enemy of faith. and the antithesis of a belief in a higher power. And it's resulted in a new world view. And that world view is humanism. We live in a humanistic culture, which, once again, wrongly, pits reason against faith. Both of which are God's creation. And so, as we have had these advances in technology and science, people have translated that somehow into the idea that there is no higher power and that humanity is really all that matters. But there is... Alongside of this, running parallel, also a growing appreciation of the fact that moving from a Christian worldview to a secular worldview is not moving from wrong to right. Let me say that again. There's a growing understanding and appreciation for the fact within the Christian world, really, that moving from a perspective of faith, a Christian worldview, to a secular worldview, which eliminates God and faith, does not mean you are moving from something that's wrong-headed, old-fashioned and outdated and irrelevant, to something that is right, progressive, and true. In fact, actually, a person moving from a Christian worldview to a secular worldview is really just switching from one belief system to another belief system. Timothy Keller. I think probably one of the greatest Christian thinkers of our time has put this really well. He says, to move from religion to secularism is not so much a loss of faith as a shift into a new set of beliefs and into a new community of faith. One that draws the lines between orthodoxy and heresy in different places. That's a big sentence, so let's just read it again. To move from religion to secularism, away from faith, away from the church, away from the Bible, away from belief, to secularism, which is humanism, is not so much a loss of faith as a shift in faith, if you will, into a new set of beliefs and into a new community of faith, one that draws the lines between orthodoxy, or truth, and heresy, or untruth, in different places. The secular worldview is becoming so pervasive in our culture in the West The Christians who hold a Christian worldview, who hold to truth found in Scripture and in faith, in an unseen God are increasingly feeling marginalized, and sadly reluctant to sort of even identify as Christians. And that is why today, as we look at this next portion of scripture in Luke's record called Acts. I want us to take a look at this phenomenon, and I've entitled it, The Absurdity of Unbelief. So let's read together. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were, were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? Which is not a compliment. These people didn't think much of the Galileans in that day. And how is it that we hear, each in our own language, which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites; those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya adjoining Cy- Cyrene; visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, or those converted to Judaism; Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own language or tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, they are full of new wine. We've talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about infilling of the Holy Spirit. And this is why, even though this is the central and core passage for that, I'm not going to speak about that today. I'm going to talk about that last sentence. Others mocking said they are full of new wine. Now, now we we need to understand that these naysayers in the crowd are actually defying reason to come to the conclusion that they did. There was visual evidence of something supernatural happening here. People saw tongues of fire above those who were speaking in other languages. The languages... We're not some kind of babble, the babble of a drunkard. The languages were actually languages spoken in the Middle East. The message that they spoke was rational, it was speaking about the wonders of God. <laughs> the context. Would also suggest that the conclusion that they came to that these guys were drunk was out of whack because just the timing of it, it was the morning and people wouldn't be drinking, a whole mass of people wouldn't be drunk at this point. Yet, they concluded that the disciples were drunk. You get that? It's absurd. This absurdity of unbelief is prevalent through the record of history and I'm afraid, you know, in our day and age. People will often say, you know, if only God would prove himself to me. If he would heal my disease or solve this problem or do something magnificent, some kind of powerful miracle, then I would believe. The truth of the matter is, they don't. (laughs) Scripture teaches it over and over again, and you and I know that some will. When they've witnessed something supernatural, some people will believe. But many will not believe, in spite of evidence. That's been presented, as in the case of Pentecost. I'm reminded of the words of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17. He says this The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? (laughs) Who is the heart deceiving? The heart isn't deceiving others, though know, there's some truth to that. What Jeremiah is writing about is our hearts deceive ourselves. You can't trust your heart. It's wicked, it's corrupted, and it can't be trusted. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Just look at the context in which Jeremiah is writing. It's a prophecy. And it's about the people of Israel choosing, figuratively, to live in a deserted wasteland versus living by a river that is lush and green. You're probably familiar with that, about the righteous are like a tree planted by the waters, who send down roots. And Jeremiah contrasts those people to those who choose instead to live amongst the briars, out in the desert. A conscious decision, knowing what their plot in life is going to be, rejecting the offer of living by water. We also read that that, uh, that God says to Israel, you've committed two sins. One of them was that you... Choose to dig a cistern and ignore the spring of living water that's just over your shoulder, right over there. You, instead, try to get your water from the air as it falls to the ground and in a desert. That doesn't happen a lot. And then you try to save it in a cistern of dirt. And you turn your back on A spring of living water? That's the absurdity of unbelief. It's irrational. It's crazy. Ellicott, who's a commentary that I'll consult once in a while, says this about Jeremiah's statement. If the blessing and the curse are thus so plainly marked, How is it that man chooses the curse and not the blessing? Or the the portion of the heath of the desert rather than that of the tree planted by the waters? The answer is found in the inscrutable, absurd, self-deceit of his nature, blinding his perception of good and evil. It simply doesn't make sense. Jesus, the Son of God, or God the Son, was keenly aware of the desperately wicked, deceitful nature of the hearts of men. In John we read these words. It's about Jesus. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he had done. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Isn't that interesting? He didn't run after their praise and their adulation. He didn't affiliate himself with them. He didn't line up with them, because... He knew that they had desperately wicked, deceitful hearts because they had unsanctified hearts that hadn't been redeemed. And he knew they'd change their mind. Desperately wicked, deceitful hearts. Can on one day welcome Christ into Jerusalem with words of praise and adulation, but one week later can scream, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Crucify Him! How is that some will believe and some will not and will never believe. Let's stay in the Gospel of John, John 10. Now it was the Feast of Dedication, and now we're getting close to the end of Christ's life on earth. It was winter, and Jesus walked into the temple, and he was on Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, just tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Not only did I tell you plainly that I am the Son of God, I backed that up with evidence. The evidence were all my miracles. And yet you do not believe. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. At which they went to pick up stones to stone him to death. The Jewish leadership could not be swayed by reason or evidence. Jesus had clearly identified himself as God's Son, the Messiah, and as evidence had performed many miracles that they were privy to, but they would not believe why they weren't his sheep they would never believe. What is the difference then between a sheep, a true believer, and an unbeliever who will never believe? Well, John, in the very next passage, in in John 11 now, tells the story of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus. Now, as miracles go, raising a dead dude is pretty high. It's pretty high, right? Especially a guy who's been dead for four days, rotting. That's what Lazarus was. As a matter of fact, when Jesus went to roll the stone away, or he said, please remove that stone, they said, oh, no, don't do that. It's going to stink. Before he did that on the way to Bethany where Lazarus was laying and people were grieving he encountered a sheep her name was Martha you know Martha she gets all the bad press for being a hard worker because Mary and Martha they were entertaining Jesus and Mary who rightfully sat at Jesus and just soaked in his words Martha was very busy getting things ready in the house. And so we always give Martha a hard time. Martha was a sheep. And actually, Martha was one of the few people before the resurrection of Christ who said, you are the Son of God, (laughs) the Messiah. Let's read about it. Jesus encounters Martha, and Martha (laughs) says, you know, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lazarus would not have died. And then in John 11, we say, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, shall live. And whoever lives and believes in, in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. She was a sheep. I doubt very much that Martha actually was privy to a lot of the the miracles of Jesus Christ. There's no indication that she was there when he turned the water into wine. Or when he fed 5,000 people. Or when he raised lepers or healed lepers and did all the other things that were miraculous and testimonies to who he was. But she had spent time with Jesus. She'd been in his presence. She knew his voice. He was her shepherd. She was a sheep. Now compare that. And we're we're answering the question, what is the difference between a sheep and an unbeliever? Compare Martha, who's a sheep. Who before the resurrection of Lazarus said, I believe that you are the son of God. Compare that to what happens after the resurrection of Lazarus. After Jesus had raised Lazarus, we read that six days before the Passover, a dinner was held in Jesus' honor. This was quite a dinner. This is the week before Christ is going to be crucified. It's out in Bethany. Bethany. And Mary, Martha, and Lazarus want to put on a meal. And people are clamoring for the tickets to this event. Not just because Jesus was there, but the risen God, Lazarus, is going to be there. And people wanted to see him. So we read in John 12, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Let's try to understand this for a second. It defies reason, quite frankly, but let's try to understand this. This is the absurdity of unbelief. Some of these Jewish leaders had actually witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus and had decided logically to kill Jesus. And even more logically, decided to kill Lazarus too. The absurdity of unbelief is when you have someone who has the power over life and death, and you decide to kill them. Can I say that again? Do you get it? The absurdity of unbelief is that you are going to kill somebody who has the power over life and death. We're going to kill Lazarus been done before he died already he's going <laughs> to he's already died once this dude's got nine lives it doesn't make sense and yet they wanted to do that and did you have a question yeah i actually sometimes think so confused with when Does it come into play with works? Yeah. The is
1: that the hearts of
0: sorrow, or is it yeah. Well, we could spend a lot of time talking about that question because it's an excellent question. But all I'm going to say today, which will sort of tip my hat a little bit to what I or tip my hand to what I, I believe. And and I will say that, I will say what Jesus said. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. There are some who will respond in faith to Jesus Christ, and there are others who never will. I don't presume to understand that, Um Churches have been divided for millennia (laughs) over it, okay? I trust God to know what he's doing about this. But the fact of the matter is that Scripture repeatedly, over and over again, proves that there are some who will respond in faith and there are others who will never will. They can be shown proof they can see a guy who was dead for four days raised from the grave and decide to kill the guy who did it and kill that guy too. It's unreasonable. It's absurd. But it's true. There will be people. Let me continue because it will help, I guess, make my point because I want to close with one more, one more thing. <laughs> we, we've talked about the absurdity of the unbelief of those at Pentecost who saw what was going on and said they're drunk. We've seen the absurdity of unbelief with the instance of Lazarus being raised and they decided to kill him and and Jesus. Defying reason. But I I, I want to point to one last thing. And for me, I mention this because to me, this is the height of absurdity. Scripture teaches us that in the end days, there'll be a great tribulation. At the end of that tribulation, and this is how I interpret Scripture, Jesus Christ will return with those who have died beforehand, who are saints and living with Him. And with those who are believers, His sheep, who are living on earth at the time, will reign on earth for 1,000 years. That's called the millennium. I mean, everybody believes in the millennium. They might disagree about when it happens and all that. So there's this millennium. Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, returns and rules on earth for 1,000 years. Yet, we read in Revelation. Now when the 1,000 years had expired... Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations. <laughs> what? You've been living in this paradise with Jesus, <laughs> under his rule and his authority. And yet Satan gets released and he's able to deceive you to the point that you rebel against Jesus? And we have the battle of Armageddon. It's absurd. It's absurd. It's the absurdity of unbelief. That people would allow themselves to be deceived by Satan. After having lived in the presence of the risen Christ. But that's what scripture tells us. Let me read it again. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from prison because Christ has imprisoned him during this thousand years. And Christ lets, lets Satan out. And he will go out into the, and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together in battle whose number is the sand of the sea. It's a lot of people that are deceived. It defies reason, and it's unbelievable. But this is the absurdity of unbelief. And so just to close, how does this matter to me as a believer? First and foremost, and always in this church, if it's there, we have to teach it. (laughs) So we're not going to just sort of skip over stuff. So that's one reason why you need to know this, that the people thought The people of Pentecost were drunk. Secondly, you as a Christian, me as a Christian in our secular humanistic world, (laughs) might face ridicule for your belief and your faith. But more often than not, you'll just sort of be treated as someone who's kind of naive and simple and childish, because you have faith. I I want you to know, folks, (laughs) that to believe in secularism and humanism is not moving from wrong to right. It's It's moving from one set of beliefs to another set of beliefs. And I, having encountered the risen Christ myself, and you, having encountered the risen Christ yourself, have chosen what you know to be true. And so you should not feel as though you've signed on to something that's just sort of archaic and irrelevant. And increasingly, we are made to feel that way. I want you to know that those who might be ridiculing you and might treat you as naive are actually signing on to an absurdity. Scripture says... That no man has an excuse. God has proven himself to everyone. No man has an excuse before God. So that's the second thing. Thirdly, not everybody is going to (laughs) believe. Now, you can choose to adopt a worldly attitude about that and say... Look down your nose at them and think of them as naive and childish. You see how it works? You can have an evil attitude about people that don't believe, which is a self-righteous attitude, which God hates and despises, actually. Or you can just love them, and you can be different. There's too much of this self-righteous condemnation of unbelievers out there. And it's what it is, is a reaction to the the ridicule that we receive as Christians. And so basically we, you know, it's tit for tat. That's That's an evil attitude. We should be, we don't know who's a sheep and who isn't a sheep. Who will respond in faith and who won't. So we continue To spread the good news of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we recognize that some will never. And and even Christ told his disciples, you know, if if a town rejects you, pick up your sandals, knock off the dust and move on. You've got to do that. But that doesn't mean that you don't love them, you don't pray for them, you don't yearn that they become Christians. It just simply means there's only so many hours in the day. And the harvest is white. You might need to move on. Folks, there's an absurdity to unbelief in scriptures. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for, yeah, just the way you teach us from it. I pray, Lord, that you would help each and every one of us to be clear about what we believe. But also, Lord, just to be those who would have such concern and care for people that we would always be working towards, letting them know the good news, that even though ridicule and aspersions could be cast, that we would not be bashful about preaching the gospel. Because it is the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great week.